Welcome to Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance Podcast, where we put leading scholars in conversation with actors, directors, and other practitioners to crack open the connections between theater research and performance in practice. I'm Madeline Seidenberg. And I'm Helen Dallas, and we're PhD students at Oxford. We've worked in theater as directors and dramaturgs. And now we also ask academic questions about theater. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Hannah Simpson and Jess Tom, also known as Tourette's Hero. Jess Tom is a performer, comedian, and disability activist. After being diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome in her early 20s, she established Tourette's Hero, an alter ego, online platform, and all around amazing creative space in order to increase awareness of the neurological condition. She has also been at the forefront of campaigns for relaxed performances in theaters, hoping to make events and performances more accessible to neurodivergent and disabled people. Jess created and starred in Backstage in Biscuitland, which won the 2014 Total Theater Award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It was adapted for television by BBC Two, as was a documentary about the making of her remarkable rendition of Samuel Beckett's play, Not I. She also creates and curates works such as Brewing in the Basement and at the Barbican and Lamppost Light of My Life at the South London Gallery. This year, Jess created Journey to a Better World, an interactive creative imagining of a world after the COVID-19 pandemic, which grew from Jess's experiences shielding for 24 months. Dr. Hannah Simpson has just completed her tenure as the Rosemary Poutney Junior Research Fellow in European Drama at St. Anne's College, Oxford. Her brilliant monograph, Samuel Beckett and the Theatre of the Witness, Pain in Postwar Francophone Drama, came out in May of this year. And her new book, Samuel Beckett and Disability Performance, is coming out hard on its heels. By the time you're listening to this episode, it will be available to read. Her postdoctoral project focuses on the forgotten plays written by much-loved modernist novelists, such as Virginia Woolf, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Elizabeth Bowen, and more. She serves as the Theatre Review Editor for the Beckett Circle and as the Theatre and Performance Reviewer for Oxford University Press's The Year's Work in Critical and Cultural Theory. She has also been our leader as the founder and convener of the Torch Reimagining Performance Network for the last year, doing great things like hosting events and discussions and fostering this very podcast. It's so wonderful to have you both here. We're really excited to see you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So how did the two of you meet or get to know one another's work? Well, I first made contact with Jess back in 2017 um, on the basis of some research I was doing on relaxed performances in the contemporary British theatre scene. Um, and I knew of Jess's work from, from Backstage in Biscuitland and, and your autobiography, Jess. Uh, and it was a great conversation and, you know, you said wonderful and useful things about relaxed performance. And then sort of towards the end of the conversation, you dropped in that you were working on Samuel Beckett's Not I, which I hadn't <laughs> realised. And I sort of went, oh, right, um, hang on. Uh, <laughs> could I get another 45 minutes of your time to talk about this? <laughs> um, and then just kept coming back and saying, could we, could we talk a little bit more? Could we talk more about that um and Jess you've of course been very generous with your time thank you Biscuit well I feel like um yeah I I think it was um it was really exciting to be able to um to be able to talk to you Hannah and to be able to start talking about I'm going to just acknowledge that my cat has arrived (laughs) on the minute that we start a conversation he he shows up and he's just he needs to get so if you can just get yourself comfortable cat that would be great it's okay it's a relaxed performance (laughs) (laughs) just ask if one of you would mind defining relaxed performance because i don't know if our listeners will know and it seems useful to give them the vocab yes yeah so a relaxed performance um is a way of identifying performances that take a relaxed approach to sound biscuit and uh, movement in the audience relaxes some of the expectations about traditional theatre etiquette and behaviour um, to allow space for inclusivity, uh, neurodiversity, humanity, um, cats. (laughs) (laughs) And as someone with a neurological condition, as someone with Tourette's syndrome who makes noise uh, and movement all the time, 
relaxed performances are uh, an access requirement for me. Risk it. But they are also, um, I think they also add and are interesting from a theatrical perspective and from the experience of what it means to be in a live, to sort of watch live performance together. Um, and so yeah, I'm excited to make sure that no one misses out uh, on incredible performances, including cats, um, because of preconceptions about who they're for or how they should be enjoyed. Um, Oh, thank you, Jess. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, Monty interrupted first, so <laughs> not to blame for that. But uh, you were talking about your um, working with Hannah. Yes. So, yeah, I think for me it was, um, you know, I I became a performer because I found it difficult to be in an audience. Biscuit, and you shouldn't have to make uh, a show to be safe in the theatre. Um, but that was sort of my experience and my route um, to performance and to occupy occupying uh, the only seat in the house I knew I wouldn't be asked to leave on stage. Um, and so Backstage in Biscuitland was a very sort of joyful, funny show that celebrated and embraced um, relaxed performance and spontaneity and the sort of chaos of trying to stick to a script when you're neuro neurologically incapable of that. Um, but well, And that was really interesting when we took that to Edinburgh and it was really interesting when we toured it and one of the things that we found was that lots of venues were said, oh, we're really interested in making our work accessible and in relaxed performance, but we just haven't had the right type of show yet. Um, and Not I had been a reference for Matthew uh, and I, who's the, Matthew's the co-artistic director of Tourette's Hero, he'd introduced me to that um, years before, and it had been a recurrent reference for us. Um, but then we were, but the, uh, increasingly we became interested in the cultural curation that was happening around what work was and wasn't considered suitable for relaxed performance and one way of challenging that was to take a really intense theatrical um, experience like like Beckett's Not I uh, and make it accessible at every level to both performer and audience without reducing the intensity of the experience and so uh, there was an element where it's like, if we can do not I as a relaxed performance, no one can say shit to us about <laughs> yeah. what can and can't be relaxed. Um, but actually, when, when I read the play and when I really connected with the words that, had, were, that were written <laughs> and the, that what became clear to me was that this was, that Mouth was a disabled character. Um, that she was a neurodivergent character, and that so much of the so many of the lines deeply resonated with my own experience, and therefore I cared about this character, um, and I wanted her. I wanted that play to be understood in the context of disability culture, and I think that that was one of the things that Matthew also had on his agenda was how the scholarship around Beckett. And the fact that actually once once we do not I as a Beckett play, it will be hard for scholars not to acknowledge disability and neurodivergence. It's sort of squeezing uh, disability, culture, pol politics and justice um, into sort of academic discourse is one way of helping that develop and the, the language and conversations around disability change and evolve. And, and so it was really exciting when I first spoke to Hannah um, and when it became clear that actually we had this, we had inadvertently connected at a really early moment in that, in that journey. And so revisiting that at different points, I think was a really, I felt incredibly lucky to have that opportunity because my thinking and relationship with that play changed, deepened, evolved. And each time I've, we've been able to talk about it, I've, um, I've really felt the benefit of that. Fact. Wow, Jess, that is such a fascinating, like, I mean, our whole podcast is interested in practice and research. And as you say, that that is such a, a profound way that practice changes research. That's amazing. I was really struck as well by your sort of description of it in some ways of the origin story of Tourette's Hero um, and about relaxed performance being the inception of performance um, for you as a performer. Um, would you be able to just give us a kind of, a, a potted history of how you came to be making the work that you do because 
biscuit. So I like I am a I am a create. I've always been a disabled person. I've always been a neurodivergent person. I've always had tics and Tourette's since very early memories of involuntary movements, noises, and behaviours. Biscuit. But I wasn't diagnosed till adulthood with tics, although I did have other neurodivergent diagnoses. And I had studied create. Like I studied um, drawing and visual art at college. Um, and alongside my creative education as a visual artist, um, Biscuit, I was I worked as a play worker, and play workers are um, people who support and nurture play on adventure playgrounds. So London has this amazing um, wealth of adventure playgrounds, which are playgrounds that uh, grew out of um, often bomb sites from the Second World War, where children started playing on them. They became junk playgrounds, and this movement of adventure play grew from that. And so my artistic practice and my playwork practice and inclusive playwork practice for disabled and um, for disabled and non-disabled children was always those two things were always really important to me. Um, and Matthew and I met when I was a teenager uh, working on an adventure uh, working at, on, at adventure playgrounds for disabled kids. And um, so we had worked together for a long time. We increasingly were interested in arts and bringing bringing artists onto play spaces and bringing children into cultural spaces um, and as my tics intensified and had a bigger impact on my life Matthew was really important in me adjusting and acknowledging um, and making peace with a voice that I didn't always recognize and with parts of myself that I didn't always recognize um, and we started Tourette's Hero together um, after a conversation in which he described Tourette's as a sort of crazy language generating machine and told me that not doing something creative with my tics would be wasteful. And I was able to hear that sentence in a totally different way. Um, and we were still working full time um, in play work until 2016. So um, when we accidentally had booked Biscuitland on a, uh, an international tour and it was very clear <laughs> that we were going to have to make some choices. And we had a really supportive employer and we're still very involved in play work. And I mention that because I think play and my connection to play and the non-precious, risk-taking and in, in nature of play spaces definitely has informed our practice as artists. Um, and, yeah, and, and essentially, so, so Tourette's Hero, we started uh, as a creative organisation that was really... A taking a very simple idea that rather than ignoring ticks for Skip, we were going to uh, make them available as creative springboards for other people's creativity and imaginations and to be the catalysts for new things. Um, and then we I'd had a difficult I'd had we I'd been to see um, Mark Thomas's Extreme Rambling with Matthew in 2011 at the what was then the Tricycle Theatre um, in London and despite doing loads of planning and prep with both the theatre and with Mark and him meeting me beforehand and um, introducing me to the audience, despite all of that, I was still asked to uh, move and sit separately at the interval because of the noises I was making. And it was a really distressing and upsetting experience. And I sort of sat behind glass in this sound booth watching a show that was about segregation um, and Mark walking the Palestinian separation barrier and I promised myself that I would never set foot in another theatre again. Biscuit. Instead, he <laughs> challenged me um, to, to, to take a different approach. Um, and together we started to explore um, the possibility of making a show. Um, and that included meeting Jess Mabel Jones, who's the co-performer and co-creator of um, Backstage in Biscuitland with Matthew and I, who um, was a performer who we'd seen at a relaxed performance um, of the uh, at the young bit so but it's definitely it we definitely um I, i'm drawn to barriers and to making those barriers visible and to challenging those barriers and to finding creative solutions and i think um definitely the moment that another that a theater company another theater company said oh the beckett estate will never let jess perform the role of mouth that was also the point where i knew that my fate was sealed and Matthew came out of that meeting and was like, so not I. <laughs> so I think that we are both, what unites us is that we're drawn 
to those to to occupy space and to and to claim space as disabled neurodivergent people that I think historically we haven't been as present in. Fat. We have a lot to thank Matthew for for <laughs> facilitating you onto the stage. Fat biscuit. Uh, yeah, I found that lots lots of moments of um, revelation and connection uh, come through my conversations with him and and his challenge to me often and to my uh, his willingness to disrupt my thinking and uh, and I feel like it's only fair to then go and disrupt uh, traditional expectations about theatre. Uh, as a as an effect <laughs> as a, as part of yeah part of part of handing that on <laughs> but yeah i think it, it helped you know, me realize the power of what we say to each other the power of moments of change like um and and what matters is connecting to ideas and i think that that's i think it can be very easy to feel like things aren't for you um and to in, internalize those message messages and um I'm interested in helping people connect with things that might um, help them understand themselves and other people better. Fuck. I wanted to turn this over for a second and ask um, Hannah about, about sort of your research practices and your questions, but I wonder if just based on that and, and sort of the ideas of barriers in the theater and, and expectations of the theater, if I might ask both of you about where we get our expectations about what theater should look like and sort of what the audience should do. And if, you know, where those sort of expectations come from and and how we can sort of undo them. Um, I mean, if I take the sort of um, the academic route for a moment, um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in this question of, of how we've come to this idea of, of course, this is how you act in the theatre, of course, this is the etiquette. Um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will know the work of Kirsty Sedgman, who, who looks at, at this sort of idea of reasonable behaviour, the idea of something that is common sense. Of course, it's like that, because that just makes sense, doesn't it? Um, one 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 thing I've written about is is the the, the moment in sort of interwar and and postwar theatre where actually British theatre is opening up significantly to working class audiences, and there are fascinating archival documents about how actually this then launched a campaign from within the theatres to teach people how to be audience members. We had you know Richard Burton touring schools to talk to children about how to be an audience member and, and what their parents shouldn't do. Um, the National Theatre releases this little guide of, you know, the plain man's guide to coughing in the theatre, how you mustn't cough, you mustn't do that. There is this, I mean, very, very literal educational campaign about how to be an audience member. And of course, that's not where the whole thing begins, but it's a really interesting um, explicit moment of setting up these things that 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 still linger, um, and that still I think absolutely have a, a really really significant impact on how we are in the theatre. I mean, even just I, I think even walking into a theatre building can be terrifying if if you have not been there before, if that has not been sort of your your common sense expectation of of where you go and, and what you do. Um, it absolutely changes how we think about who can and can't access that space. But one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons I'm interested in that question is is one of the grounding questions of, of much of my research is this idea of, of why theatre in the first place, right? Why does anybody make theatre? Um, it's really hard to make theatre. It's really expensive. It's really time consuming. You need a team. You can't just, you know, sit and write your novel in your room, she says, as if that was very easy. Um, and why do we go to the theatre? You know, why do we travel? Why do we put on our clothes and sit with other people, etc, etc. And I do think one of the things that, that that distinguishes a lot of live in-person performance is that fact that you are, yes, confronting another body on the stage. Your body is live in space and time with, with that other body, but also that you're surrounded by other people. Um, 
and some that you know and sometimes there's a sort of solidarity element to that community sometimes there are very uncomfortable things about, about being part of that group of people um but it's one of the crucial defining elements of of being in the theater you are surrounded by other bodies before you and around you so it's a bizarre twist to try and say right okay great but we mustn't be aware of those other bodies you shouldn't ever hear or be made aware of the bodies around you and you mm. must make sure that nobody is is aware of your body it's it's one of the points of the theater medium but, the, but that's funny in relation to not i and Berkit's character of mouth because yeah. one of the things that matthew find thinks is funny about it not i and is like humorous about not i is the fact that it's like the aim is to get this disembodied mouth but obviously mouths aren't disembodied it's like the denial of body and it's like that it, it there are there are interesting sort of parallels and and threads there in terms of what like trying to achieve something theatrically that is a physical impossibility if we acknowledge that bodies are a, the reality of our bodies <laughs> um and then in a space that also often ask people to deny the reality of their bodies and their humanity. I guess I wonder if we've talked a, a couple of times now, we've touched on, on this production of Not I, and I wonder if we can just sort of introduce the play and, um, and then your production of it and talk a little bit about what Not I is. Uh, I'll speak, I'll speak about Beckett's Not I, and then we can do Jess and Beckett's Not I, I guess. Um, yeah, so, so Not I, it's, it's reasonably late in Beckett's career, um, in 1972. It's a monologue for a single female voice. Um, she is only identified as mouth in the script. Um, and the staging directs that on the stage, originally, there is, um, the, as, as Jess says, the disembodied mouth. You can only see the mouth on stage and the actor's body is, is hidden in the dark um, on one side of the stage. And on the other side of the stage is the auditor, um, a figure who is cloaked in black, um, who does not uh, speak throughout the performance. But every time mouth hits her refrain, which is what, who, no, she, the auditor lifts their arms in what's described in the directions as a gesture of helpless compassion, or at least that's how it's described in the English stage directions. The French are slightly different in interesting ways. Read my book to find out why, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and the monologue itself is, is, is disjointed. It's, it's, um, it's a form of what seems like compulsive speech at speed. Um, if you look at the, the, the text on, on the page, it's very, very broken up by ellipses. And it's a woman of 70, year old, 70 years old who seems to have collapsed in a field at some point. Um, and she talks about how she's silent most of her life and every now and again she has has these sort of attacks of speech. She has to speak compulsively, um, but she will not recognise this voice as her own. It's she, she all the way through. And hence we get this refrain every now and again. She seems to be responding to another voice we can't hear who seems to perhaps suggest you or I. She says, what, who, no, she is the original text. So, Jess, do you want to talk about your production of Not I? Yes. Um, so Not I had been a reference for a long time and for the sort of show that followed on from Biscuitland, which had very much been about the experience of audience members, Not I felt really interesting because it was about who gets to perform what roles um, and also about what does this, what, what, why, does, why do I feel such a connection to this play? Why do we feel it matters? to say it now and actually as a play that lots of people perceive to be about about isolation uh, and about uh, there were moments in that where actually I didn't see isolation so there's this moment where where mouth is shopping and hands in a list and doesn't say a word and just hands in a list and a bag and and not so much as um goodbye god I don't even know the lines anymore <laughs> um and this idea that then someone does someone does the shopping and mouth pays and goes without without saying a word, and it's like oh look at how differently and how uh, how you know how non normatively 
you know, and how that must be really, that's really isolating and how odd that she shops in that way. Where I saw a community meeting her requirements and like helping her access food in the way that works for us. The funny thing about that is that most of us now shop online, don't say a word. <laughs> and it's like, but, but, but Beckett was using supermarkets and shops in the same way that documentary makers when they make documentaries about Tourette's, there's not a single documentary about Tourette's that I've seen that doesn't really include a supermarket or a library because it uses these normative spaces to show the unusual, heighten the unusual behaviour. When we made uh, Me, My Mouth and I, the documentary about the making of mm. Not I, I said no supermarkets and no libraries. And then really <laughs> sneakily, both, we got both supermarkets <laughs> and libraries in, hopefully in slightly unusual ways, but still there was a bit where we were going with Derville to look at an original manuscript and I was like, we're in the, we're in the library, it's an amazing library that looks like Hogwarts in Dublin. And I'm like, I'm in a library, I said libraries. <laughs> <laughs> and Hannah mentioned the auditor and I think the auditor is really interesting in, and, and mentioned translation. And actually the radical thing for the Beckett estate was not a performer with Tourette's as it turned out. The ra our radical ask, we, you know, they had, by the time they said yes to that, they had, I think they'd made their peace and acknowledged that that was, and I understood why it mattered to me to take on this role. I think the thing that they had not thought about, or they weren't prepared for, was our wish to do it with integrated British Sign Language. And I think that that was because they'd literally never been asked. Um, and I think we felt a real pressure about getting that ask right, because it's like, if we get that wrong, then potentially anyone else who goes with that ask is going to hit a hit a barrier. Whereas if we get that right, um, then then that might open that might open that up to other other plays and other work and other productions. What was really interesting was working with Deepa Shastri and Charmaine Woonwell, who was a deaf theatre maker and a British Sign Language performer at Biscuit, who supported the translation of the text um, into. BSL because BSL is quite a literal language and not I is quite an abstract text and there are these there are these words that have multiple sort of meanings or interpretations and often with BSL you have to commit to one um, from my understanding of it but this process of translation and retranslation within Beckett's work felt totally right both in terms of what it was saying to the world now about the fact that mouth is only as isolated as her community makes her. The message of those, the, the message that we found in that text, and also the idea of this translation and retranslation process. And actually, where the auditor had been dropped from more recent productions, because Beckett had never found, my understanding is Beckett had never found a satisfactory way to make that auditor role work. I my feeling is that it's just because he hadn't discovered integrated BSL yet. And that, um, and that actually that was that was the right like and I think the, the auditor is important to me because that is someone who's bearing witness to math in whatever way and the audience are bearing witness to math but the auditor is bearing witness to math and as someone who's never on their own the fact that there are two bodies on stage was was significant to me there was a time in Edinburgh where Charmaine was pregnant where we technically had three bodies on stage uh, but um, <laughs> but um, one of them was very hidden <laughs> and I think if I can sort of jump back to the auditor there I, I do think this is one of the really fascinating bits of, of the Tourette's Hero production because the auditor has this history of disappearing on and off the not eye stage um, you know initially when it's staged there's the auditor um, he's usually played by a man. It's it's not specified in in the script. It's sex undeterminable because under this big cloak. But but all the all the the previous cast members I've been able to find have been men. So there's something intriguing there as well about Shami and taking on the on the role. But often just proved really difficult to stage well in part because of of the sort of visual dimension. You have the tiny, tiny, tiny little mouth on stage and the auditor on the other side, it actually, you know, sort of distracts from the mouth to some degree. 
and Beckett has a really interesting line in one of his letters where at one point, you know, he has taken the auditor out of a, a, a theatre piece, he hasn't been able to do it, and then two American writers, two sorry, two American directors write to him and ask him for his advice on staging the auditor. They haven't been able to make it work. And Beckett says, you know, feel free to, to remove the auditor if, if, if it's not working. And the quote is, to me, the play needs him, but can do without him which makes no sense, right? Needs him, but can do without him. So there is something really intriguing there, I think, about the auditor being, you know, almost from the beginning, this sort of failed figure on the stage, this figure that, that Beckett wants in some way, needs him, needs that witnessing body or that other body. Um, you know, as you say, Jess, that, that, that mouth shouldn't be alone on stage in some sense, but hasn't been able to formally make it, make it work. Um, and there was something then interesting about actually this sort of precedent for 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 the auditor having changed in performance. And when Beckett comes back to Not I, he does keep trying to put the auditor in and changes the gestures in certain ways, changes the particularly the final gesture. So there is this, you know, if, if you want to be purist about it, there is this tradition of Beckett playing around with the auditor and trying to find the right bodily presence that then I think Tourette's Hero were able to build on in, in, in a really exciting way to sort of go, look, here is a sort of um, a figure who is not mouth, but is completely bound up in mouth story, who is doing this other translation. Um, and I guess, I mean, one of the things I find really intriguing about watching it was that um, in your staging, Jess, the, the, the fact that you you did have to choose whether you were going to look at you or whether you were going to look at Charmian, were, were we interested, you know, which body were we watching? And this sort of constantly fragmented viewing going back and forth between the two, which again, from a horrible academic point of view, you know, th this question of a kind of mind body split, that Cartesian dualism is such a recurring concern in Beckett's work. The idea of having a language and a body to some degree split or not recognizing each other, it, it fit perfectly to have this other bodily language going alongside mouth's yeah. verbal language. And it was really important for us that Matt, that Charmaine never never signed I, that, 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 that she didn't say I, but she, 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 I, my, my memory is that we did, the, the, the decision was she sort of placed it near me, but not complete, like it was like it was placed in a, in a spa in space with a distance but between us potentially i think was basically where it, but it was like yeah it was really important to us that 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 and the other interesting thing about the other interesting thing about the british sign language performance in some ways was that because it's such a fast monologue and because a lot of it is about being overwhelmed by language no hearing audience is collect is getting all of those words and all of that narrative and it's like there's something incredible about the sort of the, the beauty and depth of the writing that's then almost thrown away with the speed of the performance but that, that just feels really again it feels quite funny to me and also quite magic and very very neurodivergent and disability culture um but also really interesting from a from a interpreting point of view it's like at that point it's um and from a bsl performance point of view it's like how much is okay for a deaf audience to miss how do we make sure that deaf audiences understand that that the, that the, if they're missing stuff or if it's vague it's not because we've done a shit job with the translation or mm -hmm. the, 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 like, that, that's because that, that how do we help people understand the intent and how and some of that's also about how we set the space up around it to hold a disabled and neurodivergent audience particularly and audiences who maybe are coming to Beckett for the first time where it could feel alienating and like you're not getting this rather than the experiences to feel this and not to get this and that you can just let this this is meant to act on your nerves and not your intellect which I think is um was a quote from from Beckett at some point and I think that 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 all of those conversations and discussions and and uh, was a really it was really interesting I always forget because because I think I've read the play before and remember so much of the text of that monologue, I frequently forget the gesture or to imagine the physicality of that gesture. Um, 
which is one of the things that, you know, I find myself, I'm taking us off piste a little bit here, but I find myself really missing sort of live theater in that particular way. And it's making me think for the last few years about, um, you know, we've been talking about what, what the experience of a group live audience is when a group of people get together to watch, uh, you know, something staged like this and the sort of expectations within and between that audience. And I kind of wonder, you know, how do we, how do we deal with, with the explosion of Zoom theater that's happened lately and the changes that that might offer? I mean, certainly, and Jess, I'm sure you'll, you'll have more to say about this, but certainly if we're going back to the idea of access, there is, you know, there's something fascinating there about, you know, all these things that we absolutely could not do. Definitely, you know, definitely would have been possible. We can't live stream things. We can't record things, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly when the majority of the population needs it, oh, hang on, we can. Oh, you'll pay money for that. Okay, great. Um, and I mean, I don't think one is a replacement for the other necessarily, but I am interested to see um, whether you know, a lot of theatres keep this remote access available. I, you know, for example, in the way that the Bush Theatre is currently doing, every performance has a at least one online performance. Whether this remains as, as a form of access that that you know mainstream theatre will continue to run. I think that there was this moment early in the pandemic that felt exciting from an access point of view because innovation was happening. There were there was one moment of frustration for many disabled people because it's like accommodations that people had been asking for for generations and had been told were impossible were suddenly possible. But I think there was also this there, there was also this moment of experimentation and innovation and ex, like creative experimentation with what it means to connect with other people. And I think that it challenged us to do that in different ways. What I can see is that that now, as most people can come together, that has dropped away. And while that maybe some places are holding on to access, it is not that there isn't energy and time and creativity being put into what that is and how that might evolve generally. Um, and I think as a clinically extremely vulnerable um, artist, the last year in particular has been really challenging as as so many of those norms of being back in physical spaces has happened again, which is amazing, and I totally understand the instinct for that. But it's very easy to feel left behind and invisible. And actually, the more other people, the less restrictions there are, and the less consideration there is, the harder it is for those of us who are who, for whom COVID still presents significant risk. The harder it is for us to leave our homes, let alone think about how we make creative work. And there was definitely a moment in the pandemic where it's like, as a disabled-led company and a, as a disabled artist, it's like I was having to put so much extra energy and time into survival and like not organisational survival or whimsical survival, but like physically surviving. That there was no opportunity for me to be creative, like there was no space for me to be creative. Um, and that 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 is something that I would really that I'm interested in we're now in a situation where the risks presented by COVID are going to be long term the exclusion presented by COVID is also long term unless we develop and experiment with new access practices and approaches that explore how we can uh, connect um, safely with audiences who with chronically ill audiences who've always been excluded from the from spaces um, in many ways um, but that is a bigger proportion of the population now than maybe it was historically. Um, but I, but I also still feel excited by the potential. We talk a lot about non-physical participation at the moment. So every creative project that we do, we think about the non-physical participation offer. What's the? And we don't call it digital because it's not always digital. Sometimes it's a board game. Sometimes it is a stream. Sometimes it's a podcast. Mm. I'm really interested in how we can think about what is the creative offer that gives access to this work and to this content, but but does so in a way that's right creatively for the ideas and form of that thing, that artwork. Um, and I think how that links back, some of that links back to Not I, is that when we when we decided to do Not I, I think with Backstage and Biscuit Land, and I think increasingly at Tourette's Hero, we've understood that the art that we make is less about the thing and is more about this feeling in the room. It's about something that we want our audiences to feel 
Um, and that's about connectivity to ideas. It's about connection to each other. And it's about the presence of community. And one of the things that, that we didn't know with Not I was whether with a play that intense and with that history and legacy and, and all of the things that are around it and expectation around it and tradition, whether we were going to be able to create that feeling. And actually, I think that, I think that in, lots of, in lots of spaces we did. And I think that, that the feeling in the room is as much the art that we're looking to make as any single performance show or object and um, I think that that idea of like finding ways to connect is really is really exciting and really interesting and that's why theatre that's why theatre and live performance is exciting to me biscuit and it's also what I really miss fuck um Jess I did, I did just want to say I mean I think it's really important to talk about the ways in which the pandemic stunted creativity um it is also worth saying that you you did make a show about or a a creative space I suppose might be might be the best way to describe it about the experience of shielding I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that a little bit as well whilst we're on the the lockdown topic but we when when we were shield, when I was shielding and um, as a clinically extremely vulnerable person, staying in my home, and I'm also a social care user, so I have a team of people who support me to live independently in my home. Um, my the Tourette's team and my support team and my family, we started talking about my home as the spaceship, and we were imagining this experience of shielding as like everybody's been thrust into their spaceships, and we're on these long, uncertain journeys through time and space. And part of that was like, we were literally saying, all right, we could have got to the moon and back by now, we could have got to Mars and back by now. It's like, we were marking time and distance. And, but also it, it, it spoke to the, to the uncertainty, unpredictability, but also this idea that as a disabled person, we, often, we could offer leadership. We could, you know, I could be the captain of my spaceship and uh, charter course. And, um, that, and some of that links to other disabled writers and activists writing around that time. The amazing um, uh, thinker Alice Wong in the US wrote about disabled people as the oracles for now. Um, ha uh, at the start of the pandemic, the idea that disabled people had lived knowledge of unpredictably and unpredictability and uncertainty and change, and that we had the skills, knowledge and insight to help navigate. However, often the question is whether non-disabled people are ready to listen to that insight and that expertise. But when we were invited by Festival Theatre Foreman in Germany to create a piece of work as part of a sort of uh, festival and a sort of layer of uh, experimental practice that they were putting, um, putting together, we decided to make the spaceship real and create uh, our journey to the journey to a better world which yeah isn't really a show although that is how that is how I explained it to my niece because interactive performance space just was probably not going to cut it um, <laughs> uh, it's basically we made a, we made a, a spaceship an accessible spaceship and invite disabled and non-disabled people to come and be our crew uh, sit in the captain's chair and tell us what they where they would go on our journey to a better world, how we would chart a course together. And it's a space that centres play and centres exploration and centres children. Um, and I think that it uses performance practice and it uses play practice and it uses disability culture and it mixes them all together um, to hopefully create a space for coming together, connection and reflection and thinking about how we navigate in and out of these um, of, of a number of intersecting disasters and crises that are increasing with frequency and intensity and that are buffeting and, and moving us around in, in, in like practically and emotionally in very dramatic ways and how we can hold on to each other and to the things that and to the values and ethos and ethics and love and cultural and creative roots to try and find ways through that together. 
Fuck. Can I just jump back onto something that Jess said earlier that um, really made me think of something that you've written, Hannah. Um, yeah, Jess is talking about witnessing. Um, and I know in, I, I believe it's in your, in your upcoming book, soon to be released book, um, uh, sort of grappling with some of the ways in which Beckett has been dealt with from a disability perspective of, of coming not from disabled voices and ways in which um, the disabled body as something to have a, an affect on uh, the non the non disabled audience. Um, I just wondered, you know, I think that's a really interesting conversation about how, how do we think about witnessing and staging and disability and audience just drawing a lot of the threads that have followed through here together i mean to speak i suppose specifically to, to the disability question i mean dealing with 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 beckett and disability i intru i introduce samuel beckett and disability performance book with this idea that it's it's a grappling with beckett and disability um because and again, I sort of I, I have this as, as, a, as an opening anecdote. Literary studies are built on anecdotes, I think, in, in the preface about an earlier piece that I'd written uh, for the Journal of Modern Literature that was about taking a, a disability informed perspective on Quad. And I got you know, a really useful, really generative peer review back. But the reviewer and I completely disagreed on this element of what Beckett does with disability. And the reviewer said, um, you, you know, in this in this article, you're reifying the disability phobia of able-bodied culture rather than challenging it. And Beckett's presentation of disability is not stigmatizing, etc. And there is, I mean, I think there is a point to that to that criticism. You know, Beckett Beckett absolutely makes the disabled or the impaired body the norm across the stage. There are no perfectly functioning bodies there. And in fact, I think there's a lot of comic undermining of this idea that we should, of course, automatically all have perfectly functioning bodies. But at the same time, I think it's really disingenuous to try and read these plays as straightforwardly positive or activist presentations of disability. You know, often the, these are plays that are, you know, the disabled body is really skewed with discomfort and objection and despair. Um, that is used very, very deliberately, and hence why, you know, and, and Ato Kaysen's critique um, of the idea that we've always tended to read these these disabilities as metaphorical. And I, I mean, I think he's correct there, but at the same time, there's, there's a way that I think it's understandable that critics have done so because a lot of these bodies sit within these deteriorating worlds or these sort of despairing worlds. Um, and there, you know, there is really nasty disability stuff in there. Thinking about uh, uh, one of the productions I look at is the Hackney Showroom and Culture Device production of Waiting for Godot, um, which is done by by the Culture Device Theatre Company, who are a group of professional actors with Down syndrome. And suddenly, a lot of that script sounded completely different whenever you heard these actors saying those words, you know, they call each other half-wits, they call each other cretin, they talk about abortion. It's, you know, it's an incredibly uncomfortable and I think really generatively uncomfortable rendition of the play in that sense. And I don't think that to to engage with, with Beckett's version of disability, we need to reinterpret it as this sort of squeaky clean, socially responsible version of theatre. You know, he's using these bodies aesthetically and, and effectively first and forward first and foremost and that is partly why i was interested in doing the book through some very very specific case studies of of disability performers and disability-led theater companies because the bit where i think the disability ethics often comes in is in how these professionals have engaged with these performances and thought about you know in a, in a politically alert way the thought about how they're encountering these bodies and I wasn't interested in writing a book that, that sort of condemns Beckett's representation of disability as unethical, but I wasn't interested in, in offering this really sort of determinedly redemptive gloss on how all of these plays are, are actually really activist and, and really forward thinking, etc. No, I think one way where that links into to maybe the contemporary situation, though, is, is this idea, as you've touched on, Jess, you know, the idea that so many of these bodies I mean, they just are disabled, <laughs> like so obviously 
disabled, whether that is like literally in the stage direction or, you know, okay, it doesn't say, it doesn't say mouth, disabled woman, but she's speaking compulsively and she's lost control of her body. And we have refused to recognize that. And we refuse to recognize that in our, in our criticism and our scholarship, but we've also refused to recognize it in terms of casting. Um, you know, Ham is a disabled man, you know, he, he, he's paralyzed, he wants a wheelchair and he doesn't have a wheelchair. And it's, it's the big role for able-bodied men at a certain point in their career, right? And they get the praise for doing disability very, very well. And they do all the method stuff, you know, they sit on their legs and their legs go dead. And my goodness, what wonderful acting. Could we not just use a disabled body? And I, you know, and there's a huge conversation to be had there about the politics of cripping up. I do think there's something very, very specific about Beckettian performance in that Beckett is so, you know, every time he directed or every time he was, um, you know, an advisor in any of his plays, he's so interested in these psychophysical methods of acting. He's not interested in the method stuff. He's not interested in the sort of, tell me about the psychological background so I can get the character. He's going, do the bodily movements and then you'll understand the play. Do it exactly, you know, do the footfalls exactly as I tell you to do them. Do the movements exactly as I tell you to do them. These plays in performance are about really literally inhabiting the situation that described you have to speak compulsively or you have to wait on stage um or you have to not move you have to be trapped in the mind there is so much precedent there within within beckett performance to to say look actually one of the things that is being asked is to reproduce the bodily situation as closely and as rigorously as we can and again, I think this is one of the interesting things about the way you talk about relaxed performance, Jess, that this idea that relaxed performance can be a sort of loosening of the rigor. And actually, you have to work much harder. There's this idea of going, look, actually, the rigor or the virtuosity in this performance is using the disabled body um, in order to actually fulfill that script in a way that it hasn't been fulfilled before. And one of the, one of people's concerns often about relaxed performances is worry for the actor and like showing respect or like damaging their performance. And actually, what we often say is that you, as a performer, you have to work harder. But actually, that means that the performance is often tighter, more live, more more on more on point, more on fire, more all. So it's it's in the room more because you have to be in the room more. And there was a point when we were did we were doing a run of Beckett at not uh, at not I at Battersea Arts Centre, and you know there was an adult Tourette's group in the room with like you know six or seven other people with Tourette's and their ticks in the space. And Tourette's ticks are very suggestible, and it's very like and it's like I like I was like why I have to put my money where my mouth is now I ha like. I have to do this and I have to be able to do this. But if I can do this, then it will then it will then it then I can confidently keep saying that it makes that it does do something to the performance that is interesting. And in fact, our best performances have always been when there's other people with ticks in the room. By far and away the most my best performances and the most energy in the room has been because it's then not just on stage. The, 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 the automated speech is then, it's, you know, it's surround, like it, it is a real, it is a, it is a presence in, it's a very real presence in the room at that point. And I think that that's, that that's really interesting. And you know, I don't identify as an actor. I don't, so in some ways, the sort of Beckett's for God's sake, don't act or, you know, lines relieved me because it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do that, you know, I'm not, Tourette's makes it quite hard for me to do that type of acting, to, to do anything other than, the, the, than be, than, you know, have a sense of uh, an authentic performance. Um, but it definitely pushed me as a performer and terrified me as a performer and made me and challenged me as a performer in ways that I could never have imagined. But one of the things that I was very clear that I wasn't going to talk about is that with Not I, there had been a lot of chat about how difficult it was to perform and about like the physical restrictions that were necessary in order to perform it and to realize this disembodied um, and so we were quite we were quite clear that we were going to tr that we weren't interested in making me you know we wanted to try and do it in a way that worked for my body and therefore for example 
I wasn't held still, but the light followed my mouth and was in my hood. Um, we realised it differently, but it was important. It, 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 the interesting thing about the performance for me is, is not about how hard it is, but it is about where it takes you as a performer. I was really interested, Biscuit, as to whether I was at a neurological advantage as a performer with this play. Biscuit, because I understand like automatic speech is something that I've made my peace with. Like, <laughs> and I also know that my brain can do things automatically. And that if I trust it, if I learn it, if I, if I, if it's there, fuck, I can give it over. That joke, yes. So what's interesting about the writing of Not I is that there's so many lines in there that are, that, that can, that can only have come through such intensely close observation and scru like scrutiny or really like there's some like, you know, like, you know, going to the, going to the toilet to let rushes of language out is a strategy that I did throughout my education. And so to find it in a play was like, how on earth did you know that? <laughs> um, so there were lot, and there were lots of moments like that. Um, and I think, but I think it is, I think it's also like, you know, it's also interesting. It's really interesting as a disabled performer to find yourself, your most intimate, personal, bodily experiences in a text that hasn't ever been identified like that you know and i'm not, not saying that that is a not not eyes about Tourette's at all but it is the 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 the, the there was the, the my lived experience was was deeply woven through that um i was just going to say the frustrations and the challenges of performing a Beckett play of working with the um you know the, the opportunities and the and the frustrations of working with the estate and with working with a piece that was that has this sort of expectation loaded on it, I wonder, you know, working with canonical pieces versus working, like creating your own new work, whether, you know, what the what the different kinds of opportunities are with each of those. Initially, I think when we first started talking about not I. It was like, and if the Beckett estate don't let us do it, we'll put a question mark on the end and be like, why not I? What, you know. Hmm. Um, but actually that became much, much less interesting than the play itself and staging it in a way that, that, that helped, that moved relaxed performance on, that moved our performance practice on, that, that moved, like that helped us have conversations that shifted that that shifted our thinking in, in as artists and makers and performers and i think that that being able to build 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 on that legacy and mix up audiences one of the things that we were really interested in doing is what happens if we put a beckett audience next to a disability culture audience it's like we want those people to sit next to each other and we want them to occupy space together and so in some ways it was as much about the audience as it was um, as it was the, the performance in some, you know, as it was that that play. It was also about the people who would be drawn to that play and having them in the same room and why we thought that mattered. Um, and I think that the that we like we don't do any one style of creating or making art. I think we go to where we're interested um, and follow follow those lines and so I'm often surprised by where we end up I would never have predicted that I would have ever performed the Beckett play that was not something that I had been exposed to or had you know that I thought was part of the plan but I'm but I and it also and when I first had those conversations I was worried that I wouldn't have the language the intellect the insight to be able to engage with that and I think it's really helped me understand that, that, that lots of those ideas are um, a, a, a shit ideas. We don't need to worry about those things and actually what we find in performance um, is, is what matters. And I think that that's helped me as an artist and as a human being. Fuck. Oh, if I had my way, this conversation would just never Fuck. end. We just keep talking about this always. <laughs> I want to hear everything but that is that is not feasible or ah. probably sensible <laughs>
um, we should we should let you both go. But I do just want to say thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for your humor and creativity, and for everything that you've brought to this podcast today. Because this has been so wonderful to hear from you both, speak with you both. Um, I'm very excited for when we can share this episode with others as well. It's really nice to have an offer, like it's really nice to have an opportunity to re to revisit it and, and stepping stepping away from like some of the performance in time and and thinking about that how you know how our sort of performance practice continues to grow. It's really I feel yeah I feel really lucky to have had the opportunity to have this discussion and particularly the ongoing conversations with Hannah have been really important for me making sense of what is quite a weird and intense thing to to have done and to do. <laughs> oh I'm so glad to hear that because lucky was really like one of the words I was thinking of like oh I feel yeah. really lucky to, to be here <laughs> me too to bring this to other people like that's such such a wonderful position to have <laughs> no and thank you both as well and again Jess it's always wonderful to to talk I mean this was partly why I was so determined to get Samuel Beckett and disability performance out into the world because it, you know it's it's fifty percent practitioner interviews and I just think, well, why wouldn't we publish half our books with practitioner interviews? It's where the interesting stuff is. Um, I think perhaps everything Jess says should be should be written down and published somewhere. But again, perhaps neither feasible nor sensible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some oh. of the stuff I say is definitely. <laughs> This has been Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance podcast with Helen Dallas and Madeleine Seidenberg. Thanks for listening.